7.32. So we continue on with concerns over the further spread of COVID-19 after an American passenger from a cruise ship which disembarked in Cambodia last week later tested positive for the disease in Malaysia after all passengers were initially thought to be free from the virus. Meanwhile, the US has evacuated its nationals from the Diamond Princess cruise ship docked in Yokohama and the government here has also announced that it's reviewing ways of bringing back Korean nationals and is consulting with the Japanese government. Let's discuss further with Professor Benjamin Newman, Department of Biological Sciences at Texas A&M University, Texarkana, who's also part of a coronavirus study group from the International Committee on the Taxonomy of Viruses. Thank you for joining us. Hello and good morning. And you were among the experts of the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses study group that deliberated on the official name for COVID-19. Can you tell us more about that process? Of course. So there were actually two different names that came out at the same time. Uh, COVID-19 is the name for the disease, and it just stands for Coronavirus Disease from the year 2019. And that's um, the World Health Organization is the one that comes up with the disease name. So I was not part of that committee. The committee that I was on named the virus. And so the virus is actually called SARS coronavirus 2. And so it's like HIV causes the disease AIDS. We have a virus with a different name than the disease it causes. And I think the reason behind these two things is that they're both aimed at different groups of people. So the idea behind the COVID-19 name is basically not to call it SARS, to distinguish it from SARS, because there are some differences uh, with the disease. And that's what the WHO's main concern is, not getting people alarmed by calling it uh, SARS. Meanwhile, from the scientific point of view, it's very similar to this group of viruses that are called the SARS-related viruses. And since it falls on that uh, tree, it's just like uh, you pick up your surname from the name of your family. It's, uh, it is a SARS coronavirus. And this is uh, called type 2, based on its genetics. But not all of these even cause disease. And uh, this happens to be one of the few that does. But it's a distinct disease. So uh, that's appropriate in this case, I think. But just coming back to the comparison between, say, HIV and AIDS, uh, there are many people who are HIV positive who do not um, succumb to AIDS itself, especially with the medical interventions that we have in place today. But... Anyone who tests positive for this virus seems to be classified as a COVID-19 patient. Can, can you clarify that yeah. for us? And COVID-19 has a wide range of disease in there. About four out of five people that would get the uh, virus would have little or no uh, sort of symptoms of the virus. They would just eventually test positive. What they're trying to do right now, and this is behind uh, some of the changes in the way that China has been counting cases, they're trying to cast a really wide net and be just really conservative. If there's any possibility that it might be COVID-19 or spread like COVID-19, they want to classify that as a case and they want to treat it as if it is. And so that means they'll be lumping some cases of other kinds of pneumonia in with COVID-19, but it's all in the name of keeping people safe from this. They're basically overcounting on purpose. Uh, but for that reason. Well, that's useful to know uh, with the spike in figures that we saw recently out of China, for example. Um, Is it a problem if certain countries that don't have English as their first language decide on other names, like Korea is calling it Corona-19? I suppose each country can call it what it likes, but in the scientific literature, we want to be really certain about what it is that we're talking about. 
because there were actually six different kinds of coronaviruses circulating in people in the year 2019. And so we want to be really clear that we're talking about this particular type. And so that's what the name SARS coronavirus 2 does. It ties it to a particular type and a particular genome. Mm. And everything in that vicinity is going to be uh, SARS coronavirus 2. And, and frankly, whatever the media wants to call it, perhaps matters less than what the scientific literature is uh, defining it. Because even the, uh, right. the big media outlets are not always saying COVID-19. They're still saying things like new coronavirus. I guess because they want their readers to know exactly what they're talking about. Um, sure. Consistency. Yeah, new coronavirus from last year that's no longer new. <laughs> right. There we go. Uh, well, I mean, just the naming issue itself we could spend a lot of time on, but, but there are other aspects that we want to uh, talk about. You've been studying this uh, COVID-19 virus, the, the title that you gave us before with, with SARS in it, um, just to be clear of what we're talking about, uh, based on the genetic data released by Chinese scientists. What are some of the revelations that you've reached normally when you look at viruses, there are a couple ways to look at them. You can line them up and see how much is similar and how much is different. And so we've got about a 30,000 base long virus, so 30,000 nucleotides in there, which can each be A or C or T or G. And of those, there are about 6,400 that are different or are missing or added, so 6,400 points of difference, which is a lot, and they're really scattered over the entire genome. There are a couple of clusters. One of the clusters is in the protein that actually sticks to a human cell and enters it. And so originally it looked like this virus may have a different way to get into human cells. But there are now enough tests that have been done and are at least available in uh, preprint publications that we can tell that it gets in the same way as uh, the original SARS virus did uh, through the same protein. Interesting. Um, yeah. I, 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 I want to just talk a little bit about how it came about in the first place. Uh, people are still asking a lot of questions about the outbreak and uh, and you being an expert will be aware that Wuhan was one of the places where they were studying coronaviruses. Are you clear yet on, on exactly where this did originate? So nobody is absolutely certain. We don't have an exact genetic match. The closest thing we have are a series of interesting fragments of viruses from pangolins. And uh, these pangolin viruses are about 3,000 nucleotides different from uh, the original SARS coronavirus. Um, you could measure it. Uh, so viruses change a little bit each generation. And so you can figure out if you have so many mutations, you're probably so many years distant. And so the nearest viruses we have are something like 5 to 10 years distant uh, in terms of the number of mutations they would make from the um, from the current virus. So we don't yet have the smoking gun, but pangolins look the most likely so far. It's probably originally a bat virus and then went to uh, pangolins and then um, on to the others. I've actually worked with uh, the coronavirus group in Wuhan. We were working on a shrimp coronavirus. Uh, I don't believe they were doing anything with um, this uh, virus, anything like this. But, mm. uh, yeah, there's a large cluster of these viruses out there. There are about 50 of these SARS-related coronavirus sequences, and they all seem to be coming from bats originally. And we just don't have that much sequence data on bats. Somewhere out there is a bat with a virus much closer to this, and somewhere out there in some other kind of animal, perhaps one sold in an illegal wildlife market, there's going to be a virus exactly like this one, 
And the trick is going to be tracking it down, because if it is black market animals, a lot of that evidence would have been destroyed because yes. people don't want to go to jail. So it'll be tricky. Yeah. And China's way of handling information and uh, breaking news is inherently different to countries like this one and, and the United States, where journalists would be all over this and, and be leading their own investigations <laughs> and conclusions. But um, can you dispel the idea? Are you able to dispel the idea that somehow this outbreak originated among researchers in Wuhan, that somehow a vial broke somewhere uh, or or some other leak uh, that, it, that it could have got out of uh, a research facility? Because it just seems very coincidental that Wuhan would be a place like this. Uh, Wuhan's a big city and they do a lot of stuff there. But no, there's no uh, evidence that anyone has ever seen a virus like this before, um, before this outbreak. And there are just a lot of viruses out there in the world. So for every kind of animal and plant and even microbe, we think there are probably around 300 distinct groups of viruses that would be associated with that, on average. And we don't even have names for most of these things. We haven't discovered most of these. And so when a new virus appears, it's already been there in uh, nature and something else, and it's just moving from one host to another. And it's a really big task. There are far more viruses out there than there are people who study viruses. We had been starting to feel, I think, more confident in this country that, that the outbreak was under control at least, uh, especially when we were frozen for a few days at 28 infections. Then suddenly comes along patient number 29 and 30, his wife, and it's not known who they were in contact with. They weren't in contact with any of the previous confirmed patients. They haven't traveled abroad. Does this kind of situation raise great concern of, of a wider community outbreak in, in this country, do you think? It, it's a possibility, and I would imagine that the public health service uh, would be checking into this very carefully. Uh, the, the public health service that I'm most familiar with is the one in the UK, and Normally, in an outbreak like this, they are trying to track about 20 contacts for every person who actually has the virus, the 20 people that are closest. In the UK, they're testing uh, far more than this, about 10 times as many uh, contacts. And I would imagine they're doing the same. That's what happened in the MERS outbreak in South Korea a few years ago. Yeah. Well, we have a list the of... the only way. Yeah. We, we have a list of more than 100 people that they themselves got in contact with. But it's, it's, the question mark is where they <laughs> found it. Um, and the other, the other thing is it takes us into the question of people on these cruise ships. The, the um, American passenger that I mentioned oh. briefly before who was thought to be okay, like all the other passengers, disembarked in Cambodia but later tested positive in Malaysia. And you think, well, how many people did they then potentially pass the virus on to? Right, right. And I know people are really trying to get off those cruise ships and I can understand the cruise ship isn't a hospital. They're not really set up for uh, as isolation wards. Uh, yeah, so I think, yeah, it's a shame that the people were on these boats for as long as they were. And I think that directly led to a couple hundred uh, uh, cases that didn't really need to be there. But at the same time, I understand why the different countries around the world didn't want to just assume the burden of taking in all these uh, people. Essentially, each place is trying to keep the country safe uh, more than it's trying to help out those particular passengers. 
I mean, and that's a shame. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the conditions on the Diamond Princess of Japan may have been particularly tough, but at least they knew that there were infections on board, and and that prompted great caution. And anyone who's being evacuated from there, for example, from the to the United States, they are going to be kept in very contained conditions, one presumes. But the more worrying one, in a sense, is the MS Westerdam, because they didn't think there were any infections on board. And, and you've got more than a 1000 passengers moving in different directions. And it could, I mean, how likely is it that, that we're going to see further outbreaks from that? Uh, quite possible. And this uh, highlights the other sort of problem here, the technology gap. I don't think there's anywhere in the world that is set up and just waiting vacant uh, for a thousand isolation wards to just, um, you know, appear right there. Because the, it takes a lot of doctors and nurses and infrastructure, and honestly, these would be really expensive things to build and maintain that you would only use in a case like this novel coronavirus that nobody really saw coming. Uh, it's the uh, same thing applies to mass transport. Like uh, if you wanted to repatriate uh, people from one country to another who may or may not have the virus or may have been exposed, we don't have a good way to do that. For Ebola cases, we can get three or four at a time in these sort of uh, isolation chambers on a big uh, airplane, but there's no way to move uh, hundreds of people around. It's uh, something that we need to look at as part of preparedness for uh, dealing with the next outbreak. Do you see any particular part of the world as being most vulnerable right now? At least here in South Korea, we've been able to successfully treat so far everybody who's uh, contracted this virus, either treat them in, in, in hospital or even release them uh, in, in uh, 10 cases. But there have been great concerns about more developing parts of the world, uh, including Africa. Yeah, very much so. I think the part of the world that's in the most uh, trouble at the moment or dealing with the biggest problem is definitely China. There's still around 99% of the cases that are localized there. And honestly, if we were able to move these people uh, who have the virus and spread them out into each of the isolation wards around the world, each of those people could get better care and you would potentially be able to shut down the uh, virus faster. Uh, yeah, this is uh, simply the way it is. The cases appear where they appear. Now, there are some countries, yeah, so preparedness is going to be proportionate to the amount of money spent on preparedness, and not everywhere in the world has uh, the same amount of resources to be able to throw at a potential problem like this before it appears. So I think Egypt, uh, which is the one uh, country in Africa that has a case right now, is pretty well set up. They have a pretty modern uh, healthcare system. And they're only dealing with one case. So you've got an entire country's medical infrastructure to throw at one case. Mm. And that's fine. But if it gets into other places, like places where this, um, there's still an Ebola outbreak that's been raging for two years now, and they're finally getting close to the end. But the uh, infrastructure and facilities down in uh, places like the Democratic Republic of Congo are really not what you would think of when you would think of hospitals. Uh, and so, yes, it would be much more of a danger if it got into a place like that. Professor Benjamin Newman, so many different angles here to cover, uh, and we can't possibly do them all with you now. But um, good luck with your ongoing research, especially in the family of coronaviruses, as we hope to prevent a, a similar outbreak in the future. Of course, and thank you very much.